I am feel so blessed to have this opportunity to talk about one of the most amazing trips I've ever had the chance to take. It was our visit to the Holy Land uh, last June with a great group of travelers, most of whom are here at Bethany, uh, a lot of whom are here tonight. I'm excited to see. And uh, we were led by Pastor Sherry and Wynn. The is Israel and the Palestine region is to me just so fascinating from the historical and the current uh, perspectives, from the phenomenally preserved archeological finds that they're still discovering to this day, uh, to the, from the political tensions that currently exist, to the diverse landscape of deserts, mountains, fertile valleys, oceans, lakes, to the religious balance and the tension between Judaism, Christianity, and Islam in the region, the amazing, wonderful people that we met along the way. Honestly, I could talk about this trip and about my experiences and, and my impressions of the trip for days, but um, I'm gonna try and keep it focused tonight. And so to do so, let me uh, first start with a word of prayer. God, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So this Lent, we are focused on walking in the footsteps of Jesus. And that is what made uh, this trip to the Holy Land so special, uh, so especially powerful to me. Uh, we really did walk where Christ walked literally, not just figuratively. Uh, I will say going into the trip, I had some apprehensions uh, on top of the general excitement uh, about whether I would really feel God's presence or feel like I was walking uh, where he walked. You know, and honestly, uh, there were times it was pretty hard uh, to feel that, um, either of those. Sometimes the ornateness of the churches that had been built to um, protect and to honor those holy sites uh, were just so distracting that you couldn't feel any of the actual holiness of the place. And then at other times, uh, at places that really had less likelihood of having been an actual site of significance, I felt his presence so keenly and I could actually imagine what it must have been like or what it might have been like in the time of Christ. And there were so many times in just very unexpected places that my eyes would just well up with tears um, just from the overwhelming awe that I felt at that moment. It was so difficult to narrow down the places where I did feel that I was walking in Christ's footsteps. But I decided to focus on the area where so much of Jesus' um, ministry occurred. This is by the north part of the Sea of Galilee. I think we have, oh, we missed the map. We'll come to that one. Um, anyway, they're, uh, at the very top of the Sea of Galilee, um, from, from there, we'll talk about, I'm gonna talk about the area between Capernaum and Magdala and onto the uh, Valley of the Doves. But it's real small, it's about six miles from end to end. Um, but this is, scripture is just so rich with Christ's ministry and his life in this area. So that's where I wanted to focus tonight. So this photo actually shows a small section 
of the excavated ruins that are at Capernaum. From, and these are uh, ruins from the time of Christ. Uh, in the area, you could tell the first century uh, ruins in this area because they are the dark basalt. Uh, this is one of the busiest towns in the region. And here you can see foundations of houses, of markets, of stores. Uh, there's also a third, fourth century synagogue. It's of different materials, more of a limestone and marble. Um, but in the next slide, you'll see that they're all over the place in these most beautiful decorative elements. Uh, this stone carving depicts the uh, wagon used to uh, transport the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, they were just fascinatingly beautiful details. So Capernaum was the center of Christ's ministry in the area. It was actually mentioned, it is mentioned, 16 times in the New Testament. Matthew 4, verses 12 through 17, talks about the uh, beginnings of Christ's ministry in Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Capernaum is where Jesus called his disciples, walking beside the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum is where the centurion came to Jesus to ask him to help his paralyzed servant just by saying his words, trusting and believing that Christ's authority was ruled, even though the centurion was a Gentile. Capernaum is where Jesus taught, where he cast out demons, where he healed, including Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Luke, Luke 4, verse 31 through 39, uh, he said, Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. So this photo here shows what researchers believe is very likely to be the house of Simon Peter in Capernaum. The foundations of the house itself are very, very ordinary for the time, uh, but they have found significant evidence from the first century AD that the house had already become a place of worship. During those very early years after Christ's death, when people were still alive who had known Jesus and who had known Peter, they have found ancient graffiti, basically, that, uh, with inscriptions in Greek and Syrian and Hebrew saying things like, Christ have mercy, and having inscriptions of small crosses around. As I was reading through and preparing, I found one author uh, in an article said, were it not for its association with Jesus and Peter, why else would a run-of-the-mill first-century house in Capernaum have become a focal point of Christian worship and identity for centuries to come. 
But Capernaum was also one of the towns that rejected Jesus and rejected his teachings. In Matthew 11, 20 through 24, he basically curses the unrepentant towns, including Capernaum. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. And you, Capernaum. Will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Reflecting on this verse made me ask, how often do I reject Christ's miracles in my life today? I try to say I'm a follower of Christ, but too often I'm not allowing God's grace and his good news to fully change me into what he designed for me. I guess at times I'm not actually following in his footsteps, but I might be following more in the footsteps of the people of the Capernaum. Thankfully, I know he does not give up on me, and so onward I go. Just about a mile to the west of Capernaum, on a hill that overlooks the Sea of Galilee, there off in the distance, is the Mount of Beatitudes. While the exact site may or may not be known, this beautiful, peaceful location would have provided ample space for a large crowd that had gathered to hear Jesus speak his Sermon on the Mount. Um, there is this really pretty um, octagonal church uh, that's built up there. It was built in the 30s, so it's very modern. Um, it's actually the eight sides represent the eight Beatitudes. But if you, as I walked down through the gardens and down below that church, I could just imagine being sitting there on the crowd that day, looking down upon Jesus as he began to preach his great sermon. Jesus would have spoken to the crowds using images that they would have immediately understood, examples that were just all around them. Matthew 6, 26 through 29, says, Look at the birds in the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. And Matthew 7:16, by their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Uh, speaking of thorn bushes and thistles, here are just some of the examples of some of the thorn bushes and the thistles that we saw in many different parts of Israel. Jesus' audience knew exactly what he was referring to. I definitely would not expect to find grapes growing in something that evil looking. Again, the Bible just becomes real. So just about three quarters of a mile down the hill from the Mount of Beatitudes is the area known as Topka. It's short for the Greek word that means seven wells or seven springs, and they still flow there today. There's one of the springs in the Topka area. 
This area is the traditional site of the miracle of the loaves and fishes, and it's marked by Church of the Multiplication. But nearby, there's also this small chapel of the primacy, which is the traditional site where the resurrected Christ appeared to the disciples as described in John's gospel. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net to the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. This spot is known as Mensa Christi, the table of Christ. Now whether this exact rock, this spot along the shore, is exactly where Christ fixed breakfast that day. No one knows for sure. But I've gotten the chance to see the shores where Peter and the other disciples would have fished. I can imagine Christ building a fire upon the rocks by that shore, waiting for his disciples to discover him. I can picture Peter jumping out of the boat and swimming for shore in his joy. I'm still not sure why he put that outer garment on to jump in the water, but he did, so we'll go with that. Um, but just, again, it, it brought home the Bible in such a vivid way. So if you move on down the coast, uh, the west shore of the Sea of Galilee, you'll come to the recently discovered ruins of the first century port of Magdala, um, the home of Mary the Magdalene. They have discovered a very well-preserved market site uh, with water tunnels that fill tanks where fish would have been kept alive until they were sold. They found the remains of a very wealthy home with some beautiful mosaics, uh, very detailed mosaics on the floor. But most importantly, in 2009, they discovered the remains of a first century synagogue. This synagogue here was just, it was beautiful. It's the only synagogue of this time that they have found to date that has these type of detailed mosaic floors. And it's probably hard to tell in this picture, you can kind of see in the top left, there were uh, colored frescoes that decorated the walls and the columns. In the main room of the synagogue, they discovered this. This is actually a representation of it, um, but this beautiful, uh, uh, carved stone that was likely used as the base for a reading table that would support the Torah scrolls. On its front side there, you can see one of the earliest representations of the seven-branched menorah. Uh, they've also found ritual baths right next to the synagogue that were fed by underground fresh water. It was a very unique system for the time. So this was likely a very wealthy synagogue in a prosperous town. So from an archeological point of view, right, it's, it's pretty cool, it's pretty fascinating. But when you really start thinking about it, it is very likely that Christ 
taught in that very place. Matthew 4.23 says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So if Mary Magdalene, who was one of his main followers and supporters, who Luke mentions specifically in a list of women who were supporting them out of their own means, was from that town, it makes sense to me that Magdala could have been one of those very synagogues where he taught. Can't you just see him sitting there with the other men of the town in that synagogue with the Torah spread out along above, above the carved stone teaching and preaching the good news of God's kingdom? Wow. And then finally, we make our way over to the Valley of the Doves, or it's also known as the Valley of the Wind. In the right-hand upper corner of this picture that was taken from the Mount of Beatitudes, you can see the valley that goes up right below the Mount Arbel, which is the dark mountain um, in the center there. So that valley ran from east to west, from the Sea of Galilee to the Mediterranean Sea. And this would have been the path that Christ took to walk between Galilee and Nazareth and Cana. So we only got to walk on a little section of this path, but I could so very easily picture that little has changed since Jesus walked on this very path. The mountains on either side still stand majestically. There are no roads, there's no traffic, no churches, no chapels, no tourist spots selling souvenirs. It's just a path. It's a path where Christ might have stopped to rest on a boulder by the stream that still flows by. A path that trees grow along where Christ might have paused to rest from the intense midday sun beating down. It still takes my breath away. There are so many more places I could talk about the powerful feelings of walking where Christ walked the temple steps in Jerusalem where Christ would have taught, the Mount of Olives with the beautiful chapel, Dominus Flavit, uh, that honors where Christ wept over Jerusalem, the Garden of Gethsemane with olive trees that were alive at the time of Christ's uh, night uh, as he prayed through the night. But I'll save that for others, and hopefully I pray that each of you might have the opportunity if you have not already gone, to have the chance to go to the Holy Land. The Bible sure has come alive for me in a way that I hadn't fully imagined. Uh, my prayer is now that I may learn to fully follow Christ's figurative footsteps and not just where he physically walked. I want to have the courage and the willingness to direct my path, to walk into the path that he leads me to follow. So tonight, I'm going to close with this view of dawn breaking over the Sea of Galilee as a few of us took a very early morning walk along that sea, this beautiful spot in Israel where the Bible has really come alive for me. I truly praise God for giving me the opportunity to walk where he walked, 
and to have shared that experience along so many from our Bethany family. And I thank you all for allowing me the chance to share some of that experience with you tonight. And now let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this powerful journey you have set out for each one of us. I am so grateful to have seen in person the places where your feet walked, but I also know that alone is not enough for me to truly follow you. Give us each the strength, the courage, and the openness to hear your call and lead us onto the paths you want for each of us. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Amen.